Chapter Four of the Master Girl: A Romance by Ashton Hilliers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hard need, mother of invention. The days wore. De Yan went about her hunting with extreme precaution, cultivated eyes all over her brown body, pricked her small hairy ears perpetually, and moved through the most tangled coverts of trailing pine as silently as a fox. Acting upon her husband's suggestion, she laid a trail about the main glen, and having completed the circuit, sat a day out, ambushed beside her tracks, to wit if any creature, whether lynx, wolf, ghost-bear, or man, should be following up her spore. None showed, and she grew uplifted of heart again, and as luck would have it, her hunting prospered for once beyond reason. A roebuck met her face to face in a pass between two rocks. The small fellow was more than full-headed. He bore eight three-inch tines, any one of which was death to a naked woman, and for a moment meant battle, but after a startled grunt, tossed his head and doubled in panic. Dayan's throwing-stick broke his off-hind leg below the hock, and she finished him after a fight in which the odds were still about even the charges of a roebuck at bay, even when upon three legs, are sudden and very difficult to avoid in deep snow. If he had once got the girl down, she would never have risen again. But the affair went well, and Dayan, toiling mightily, won home with a load of meat, and a deep-piled mossy skin for her man to sit upon. She had restocked the cave with missiles. Scores of stones, as heavy as she could manage, were piled against the rock-sides of the dwelling ready at need. This was a three days' labour, and it was whilst resting after her last load, and discussing the arrangement of their stores of artillery, that the singular incident occurred, which resulted in, but I will not anticipate. The element of luck mingles in the best-laid schemes of human intelligence. Chances lie thick about us, and genius consists in the recognition and utilisation of chance. These strung drills were common form to Pulyun, who had known them all his life, and expected nothing more from them than they were made to yield, and had long since disclosed of use. As for playing with them, it had no more occurred to him to amuse himself by playing tricks with a strung drill than it occurs to your harvestman to use his scythe-handle as a vaulting-pole or to your gardener to practice throwing with his fork at a target, or to toss and catch his spade. The implements of labour are invested with the seriousness due to maturity. Respect should be paid to them. If one gets larking, something is sure to be broken. They are tools, not toys. But to the girl, a strung drill was a novelty, a thing beautiful and astonishing, an inexhaustible source of wonder and amusement, fraught with all manner of latent possibilities. To Pouillon, a good conservative, it was unimprovable. The girl's audacious innovation had already outpaced him. There was much that was interesting, but naught that was sacred in the thing to her. She had amazed her husband by one improvement, and was about to astonish him yet more. Not that she was aware of what was coming, no, she was simply uneasy as yet in the presence of a tricky piece of mechanism with unexplored capacities of use and delight in it. 
she did not sit down to invent she simply started to play and in this her sex and temperament gave her a pull over her comrade a man loses much of his zeal for if not the power of playing soon after sixteen that is to say for anything that is not a contest or a gamble the so-called sports of manhood cricket footer rowing hunting and what not are usually very exhausting and frequently outrageously expensive forms of business from which the primary idea and essential qualities of play have disappeared for it is of the very quiddity of play that it should be gay irresponsible jolly in a word and who will be hardy enough to claim gaiety for croquet or irresponsibility for bridge but most girls and many women can play at any time as naturally and spontaneously as a child or a kitten Dayan, fortunately for herself and for Pulyun, and for you and me Dayan, i say possessed this happy faculty of amusing herself with whatever scrap of stone stick or string came within her reach these strung drills for example she was for ever stretching releasing twanging the things studying their actions and reactions wondering at the difference in their notes and had come within a little of discovering the germ of the lyre when well what she did discover was of more importance than music to mankind in the making pulyun had been for a month and more carving a tomlinks out of a piece of bone it was a spirited performance for the man like many of his race was an artist at this work Dayan, whose faculty lay in another direction could not assist him and thus while he bent over his work she was trifling with one of the strung drills temporarily out of use she had been trimming the hide of the roebuck and was still holding a sharp-edged shard of chert in her left hand the hand which also held the taut bent wood she was plucking and releasing the string listening to the twang of it and by chance by the veriest chance the shard pricked her palm she transferred it to her right the string hand and plucked again the loosened cord caught the stone which flew across the cave and struck pulyun above the ear drawing blood wah what was that he asked without temper and would be shown how she had done the trick it was amazing dayan whilst amusing herself had stumbled upon a property of the bent stick and cord which had escaped the dull eyes of countless generations of routine-ridden unimaginative men the new play diverted the girl and her husband through her albeit neither as yet had caught a glimpse of its significance indeed it was three days before dayan dayan again discovered that a stick could be propelled endlong by the same agency they had hit upon the root idea of the bow and arrow without knowing it and like a thousand other excellent ideas this might have perished without bearing fruit but for the occasion which revealed its importance lifting the fortuitous combination of two sticks and a string from the status of a toy to the dignity of a lethal weapon of the first rank the luck of inventions is very various we know a crabbed octogenarian who in boyhood invented a certain tool but could find no one to take it up nor had means to patent and push it himself he broke his model in chagrin and sixty years later saw another man rediscover his idea 
and win wealth and fame by his discovery. It will be understood that since the ghost bears attempted escalade, the youthful householders had never felt safe, but suspense and fear did not break them down as a modern couple under similar conditions might have been broken down. Early man was a hunting animal, hunted in turn by beasts stronger but less cunning than himself. Among the first recollections of our ancestors would be that thrilling cry of wolf and the scurry for shelter of tiny bare feet up rock faces too steep for the blunt claws of the secular enemy of childhood. When the shadows lengthened, the fear of bears grew urgent, as it does to those cave children's far-removed descendants today in nurseries lit by electric lights, a fear sedulously instilled by the careful cave mother, for the shaggy urchin who didn't care, and who had ventured one step too far beyond the circle of firelight, never came back and left no progeny. We are the lineal heirs of a race of creatures who had the very best reasons for dreading the dark. Hence you shall find among your acquaintance tall men of fine physique and cultivated women whose almost complete emancipation does not include the liberty of walking around their own suburban tennis courts alone after nightfall. Pulyun and Deyan had had their warning. Thenceforth their fire was never let out, nor at night did they both sleep at the same time. Meanwhile the lynx was turning out well. There were no flaws in the bone. It worked kindly, and the tedious process of scraping and undercutting went on steadily. Give me but ten more days to get out of these splints, and yet another ten to supple the stiff limb, Dayan. And then, let thy ghost-bear lover come if he will. I will meet him at the cave-sill and stop him there. Then he would expatiate after the manner of men upon the extraordinary virtues of his tribal totem, the sun-god. Oh, a good totem, a great totem, the best of totems. Yet not so good as mine, reposted the woman with conviction. Thou shalt see, my totem, the little moon, will have the better of it yet. She knew not what she meant, but for the fun of opposition she argued pertinaciously, and had the last word whilst testing the capacities of her new toy at a mark. Yes, it would send a big skewer the whole length of their dwelling, and make it stick firmly into anything softish. Moreover, and this was a thing to take note of, you must shoot from the level of the eye and aim point-blank, no throwing high as with an assegai. She was learning more than she knew. She played at this childish game at intervals for some days, gradually lengthening the skewers, and attaining a pretty creditable proficiency. Watched with a good-humoured tolerance by her husband, and might, in the end, have played her game out, and wearied of her toy, without getting to the bottom of it, had not the thing happened that I am about to tell. There came a bitter night, with the wind edging in and out of the cave-mouth, and compelling the youngsters to shift the fire and the bedskins to the far end if they would keep a light or sleep at all. Pulyun had taken his spell off, shuddering and muttering in sleep, and Dayan, shivering in her bison robe, had kept watch. The last silver shard of a waning moon hung low over the forest spires southeastward. The cave-woman made silent obeisance to the god of her private orisons, 
bending low and striking the rock floor with her forehead. Little moon, be good to my man and to me. She grovelled prone, and as she did so, something snapped beneath her. It was one of her assegais. She raised it, and examined it in the dim light, good enough for a woman of a race which still saw well enough in the dark. The mischief was done, the thin tapering shaft had parted at a knot-hole, a flaw in the wood selected by its maker, the loutish Gaulou. The keen leaf-shaped chert head of the weapon had less than an arm's length of shaft behind it, and until remounted was useless as a throwing spear. Pouillon sat up at the sound, asked and was told its cause, and scolded his wife for her carelessness. She excused herself, and even as they spoke, querulously as sleepy folk may be excused for speaking, who are miserably cold and are talking down a blusterous wind, and perhaps too loudly for a hunted folk, the terror was upon them. There, upon the sill platform, beyond the cave's mouth, and disregarding the dull ash of a dying fire, let down because the night was over, stood the great ghost-bear, huge and hairy, terrible, black against the first pallor of the dawn, obliterating Dayan's totem, nullifying and intercepting the answer to her prayer. Escape was none, nor was resistance reasonably possible. The enemy was already within their defences, had made good his footing, yet Pulyun, without a word of reproach to the woman whose ear had for once been at fault, gripped his axe and sat square with clenched teeth and narrowed nostrils. No moan escaped him. His time had come. He would show his squaw how a sun-disc brave could take his death. The girl's heart seemed to swell upwards until it filled her body and thrust against her throat. She did not cower or shriek or cover her eyes, but crouched for a spring, if such might be possible. She would give away no fraction of a chance. Her man was doomed, nothing that she could do, nothing that ten men in her place could have done would save him. But life is very, very sweet. What of herself? Could she, or could she not, slip past and escape? Yes, it was possible. She was wearing kilt and caross. She slipped out of both, and stood nude and slippery, agile as an eel. Her garments she proposed to toss in the bear's face, then to throw her bison robe over his head, and to dart past him, whilst momentarily entangled. And leave your man, the loveliest, kindest, cleverest, wisest, best creature that ever lived, to this ghost of the silly saw Kimo, to be chawed and mumbled alive, to have the bone that is almost knit cracked and sucked, whilst you run away. Something within the woman, not recognisably herself, puts this very pertinent question. Who was the speaker? Unquestionably, it was the totem, the little moon of her prayers. So she persisted to her dying day. The innate womanhood of the master-girl, that passionate self-devotion, self-immolation, of which the sex in every land and under every manner of garb and rites has proved itself capable, arose and strove. No, she would not go forth safe, alone and humbled. She would die with her man, for her man. Indeed, for this matter, 
should be taken fighting. Tossing her clothing behind her, she stooped and groped right and left, snatching for spears, axes, anything in the darkness. Then, when she looked again, the huge beast had shuffled sidelong past the hot ashes, and was standing over her husband. Pulyun had thrown back the hand that held the axe for one last stroke. The bear, just beyond reach, certain of his meal, and perhaps not particularly hungry, or, it may be, disposed, as are all beasts of prey, to play with his victim, snarled joyously, and half arose upon his broad haunches, hanging a vast bestial head over the seated man, its pestiferous darkness imperfectly lit by the green glitter of an eye. Exactly over the brute's head, and between his round ears, Dayan caught sight of that pale thin sickle of moon, her moon, her people's god and hers. Her right hand held the broken assegai, her left the longest strung drill. She had snatched it from the floor in mistake for a spear. There was no time to seek another weapon. The spears, as she now remembered, lay between Pulyun and the ghost bear. If there was to be fighting, she must fight with this toy, naught else. With an almost bursting heart, she fitted the stump of that broken assegai to the string. I have said it had parted at a knot. The knot-hole provided a natural and quite effective knock. The girl drew suddenly, hugely, and with the strength of her despair, until the chert head lay upon her thumb. She aimed at that green eye, and loosed with a cry, Moon, help me! The cave hummed to the twang of the cord. The green light of the eye went out. There was a reverberating, snarling roar. The enemy, instead of charging, backed, shaking his head in a horrid agony, and as he reached the sill, having lost his marks, reared and clawing his mask with both paws, fell over the edge backwards, down and down. Open-mouthed, incredulous, the youngsters listened for the rasp of claws and the sounds of reascent. Instead, after a perceptible interval, came a dull, pounding crash. He had gone to the bottom, taken the full fall, a hundred feet or more. There was moaning, fainter and more faint. Silence came before daylight showed them the extent of their deliverance and their abounding, enormous wealth. There, at the foot of the cliff, lay the dead monster, huddled and broken and burst, incredible but true. Pulyun had held Dayan in his arms for a minute, which seemed an hour. Neither had spoken whilst the ghost bear's dying was going on, and those gruesome sounds came up from below. For once Dayan's nerve had failed. She had clung to her husband, dumbly shuddering, conscious of what she still possessed, and had so nearly lost. Of her own escape, she was thinking not at all, nor of her amazing feat, at present. Pulyun was the first to pull himself together. As a conservative, he felt that the hour might not pass without the ritual proper to the occasion, the halalai, sanctioned by custom and use. So, he sang the bear song, an ancient chanty 
which had come down from the youth of his tribe, full of absurd boasting, insults to the slain, and gastronomic anticipations. But even whilst trolling it out upon the frosty air, and watching his hot breath smoke in the red dawn, he felt less than himself, and knew well who, by right, should have been celebrating the victory. Only who ever heard of a squaw singing the bear song? He had not borne himself ill, as he knew, but had not another interposed, this ogre had been cracking his marrow-bones by this time. Meanwhile, De Yan, being intensely practical, was hardly giving her husband's music the applause and critical attention which he might have thought due to it. Hungry and cold as she was, she must set to work ere the great unwieldy carcass should have stiffened, and, labouring as she had never laboured in her life, heaved, thrust, wrenched and tugged until the hide came away. During this menadic spasm of toil, I am bound to confess that my heroine worked stark naked despite the cold, and neither ate nor drank save for the morsels of raw bear meat, with which she filled a distended cheek at intervals. For Dayan, though a savage, was no fool. She knew none better that the smell of so much spilt blood would bring upon the scene eagle and lamagaya, buzzard and raven, and what she feared more, wolverine, lynx, wolf, and, she knew not what beside, possibly man. Whilst it lay there, it was a menace to herself and to her husband, but promptly and properly dealt with, it was warmth and food and safety for the remainder of the winter. The hide, when off, proved an unhandy burden, made still more massive by its accumulations of frozen blood and snow. Two whole deerskins went in thongs before a cord was knotted, by which she, Pulyun assisting, drew the load up the cliff to the cave. Nor was the girl even then content with her day's work, but ere the short winter's day closed, had lit fires on three sides of the carcass, and begun to strip the bones. The salving of that bear's meat was a four-day's poem. By the fifth evening, the youngsters were victualled for the rest of the winter, and Dayan had not one thumbnail's breadth of cutting-edge upon the last of her church flakes. She was also dead beat. The whole of the sixth day, and the following night, the girl slept the deep, dreamless sleep of a healthy organism, wearied out, watched by Pulyun, who had seen to it that she had gorged herself to repletion before lying down, and who had himself rubbed her swollen joints vigorously with fat, and who watched over her whilst she slept beneath the vast hairy spoil of her twice-dead lover. Sorkimo, jeered the young brave, during the long chilly night watches. This is the third time thou hast bid for my woman. She was not for thee, nor thy little moons. She is mine, mine, I tell thee. Was there ever such a woman? Never. I have seen two bears die in my time on the other side of the ranges, but they were brown bears, and young bears at that. Yet they died within a ring of as many braves as they, or thou, had claws upon their feet. It took the whole strength of a war-party to bring either of them to bay and keep them there. We brought two braves who did not go home with us. One we buried to each bear. And look thou at thy business, O Sorkimo, if that be thy name, and whimper for shame. 
thou who died at one stroke and that from the hand of a squaw of a girl a stroke in the eye of thee in the brain of thee such a stroke and thou a cave grizzly was there ever such a woman so pulyun for the glory of the feats had got upon his imagination the more he sang of it the less he understood it you must remember that his knowledge of how the thing had been done was all by hearsay the bolt had been discharged from behind him and owing to the darkness of the cave he had not watched its home dayan's description of the wound and of the chert's assegai head still enfixed in the eye-socket was unsatisfying he must see for himself some day soon yes at once the great stripped skull which lay a hundred feet beneath him and whilst he pondered a certain familiar sound reached his ears from the foot of the cliff it was the cracking of a bone some furry scavenger of the forest had been drawn to the carcass and would not be long without competitors the man must risk something he cast loose his bandages and splints and crawled to the sill and hurled stone after stone upon the marauder nor did his legs suffer the bone had knit the scraping greasing and suppling of that immense hide was a laborious business but a labour of love for dayan whose heart was both big and high within her there was no tribal record no legend even of any woman having killed a bear in single fight yet she held her tongue and silently grew in moral stature pulyun might sing about his wife's prowess but he was not to be convinced of the superiority or even of the use of her new weapon he was a spearman as a spearman an expert with the assegai he had won the deputy chieftainship the war chieftainship of his tribe what was possible with the spear he could do but this fiddling with a strung drill was too novel too womanish too uncertain as yet he would have none of it the girl already convinced and sanguine wisely desisted from argument by the help of the cord the massive skull was hauled up from below to tell its tale to deaf ears to be admired turned over its death wound marvelled at and its lesson ignored the man set himself to dig out the enormous white fangs he also detached those twenty black curving claws arranged studied and pored over them watched by dayan she knew by intuition what was passing in his mind and waited this was the critical the dangerous point of their married life who was to wear those teeth those claws he put the question from him she had not raised it it would wait the trophies were not ready for wearing as yet they must be drilled before they could be strung dayan saw that her husband needed something but was too sulky to ask and by a real intuition fetched him the lengths of elder which he required for this new drilling and left him to his work setting herself to study the properties of her new weapon there was nothing to take her afield stacks of frozen bear meat blocked the cave she could experiment at her leisure and had conquered some of the initial difficulties before her man glumly busy up above knew anything about them thus the girl found that assegai heads were too heavy and assegai shafts too stout for successful shooting terrible at point-blank range 
at anything over twenty strides they wobbled and swerved and fell short and dayan the practical argued and argued rightly that unless her shafts flew farther and straighter and a bit deeper than a thrown assegai she had better keep to the orthodox weapon she needed chert or flint to make for her arrows smaller and lighter heads but neither chert nor flint was to be found in that valley nor was it possible for her to adventure the week's journey downstream to the chalk cliff which was the only source known to her of the tribe's cutting tools but womanlike she remembered her needles and in default of chert fell to experimenting with bone tips attached to lighter shafts by rosin and sinew the hafting method of the little moons she succeeded from the first attempt settling after many trials to a shaft as long as her own arm made herself ten upon this pattern and practised sedulously skill came apace far more quickly to this ten-sinewed one-ideared savage woman than it would come to a modern and at the end of three days constant archery she found herself able to put all ten arrows into a small circle marked out upon a snowbank at full assegai range beyond this range her missiles disappointed her they still wobbled as a practical spear-thrower she knew what was lacking there was no spin upon them how could this be remedied this question lay down with her at night and arose with her in the morning she besought her totem for wisdom but got never a sign a sacrifice was needed she vowed to the moon the first fruits of her bow and greatly daring had ventured out into the wintry forest armed with her new weapon and naught else what would the god send the moon is a man to the savage fur or feather a little hazel grouse trotted out into the glade the shot was a difficult one impossible with spear or throwing stick owing to overhanging boughs but the girl prayed as she drew and brought it off her heart filled with gratitude her totem was still watching over her for good this should be a whole burnt offering a few feathers alone would she retain as her own share of the spoils the first that ever fell to her bow the ghost bear always accepted whilst walking caveward these curving flight feathers in hand something in their curvature their shapes aroused her superstition moon feather she whispered and attached one of them to one of her shafts the feather was narrow stiff and strongly curved it refused to lie along the shaft but must needs curl somewhat around it when bound thereto by small sinews at either end dayan's first shot with it at a snowbank target flooded her bosom with adoring gratitude for here was the thing she had sought and prayed for the shaft spun as it flew again and again she essayed shots at increasing ranges and still the wonder persisted at fifty yes and at sixty paces the shaft flew straight swerving neither to left nor right all her shafts were presently feathered and since the principle eluded her and some behaved better than others she must practise daily watch consider and think and within a while came to a practical conclusion to closely imitate the feathering of those which span the best End of chapter four